Do you know what word gets used in Ephesians with far greater frequency than any other book in the Bible? The word rich. The word rich gets used in Ephesians with far greater frequency than any other word in, in any other book uh, in the Bible. That word is a great word, I think, to describe what I feel like the book of Ephesians has been so far. It has been so rich. Uh, it seems like I have commented at the beginning of almost every sermon in the series about how packed or how heavy deep or rich the section that we are about to go through is. We have just finished chapter 1, and we're going to start to look into chapter 2 this morning, and the passage that we will be in continues this theme, which continues my feelings of inadequacy to actually do justice to the rich gospel roots proclaimed in our passage. In some ways, it feels like In Ephesians, we've been jumping from mountain peak to mountain peak, avoiding the valleys uh, in this book up to this point for Christians. There doesn't seem to be many valleys up to this point in the book of Ephesians for Christians. To understand and really appreciate the true meaning of a word like rich, though, we have to have an understanding and a comprehension of the opposite of the word rich, right? You have to know something about what the word poor means. To fully grasp the word rich. I mean, we instinctually understand this concept, don't we? Because it's something that our retail stores, marketing firms use all the time to sell us their product. Like at a, at a candle store. If you go to a candle store, I like candles. I'm okay with that. I'm secure in myself. I like candles. They smell good. So I've been to a few candle stores. If you go to a candle store... In order to enhance your ability to smell the good scented candles, what do stores often have for you to smell in between the sampling of the different candles? Coffee beans, right? Coffee beans. The harsh, bitter smell of coffee beans gives clarity and freshness to the candle scent that our noses couldn't pick up before. Another example of this contrast selling technique comes with jewelry or diamonds specifically, right? When you go to a jewelry store, when you see an ad on TV for diamonds, what surface do they usually lay the diamond on? It's not the glass that they are held in, right, and put on display, but on a piece of black felt or velvet or something like that. This is so that the sparkle, shine, and light that goes through the diamond can be better seen in contrast to its black background. Well, Paul, in our text this morning, uses the exact same technique for us. In order for us to truly grasp and understand our salvation, we must know the backdrop of what we are saved out of, what we were saved from. We need the backdrop, the dark backdrop of our state before Jesus, prior to Jesus, to fully understand our salvation in Jesus. In order for us to be able to take in the light and treasure of the great salvation that we have in Christ, we need it held up against the backdrop of our state before Christ. That is what Paul does this morning in our text in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He holds up the condition from which every human suffers from, but he does so in order for us to clearly see the beauty and miracle that is the salvation that we have in Christ. 
He does that in order to make the salvation that we have shine the way it's meant to shine in our hearts. So if you can are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. But we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can take your seat. This is another run-on sentence. (laughs) So Paul, from... Chapter 1 all the way to the first 10 verses of chapter 2 takes three deep breaths and just spells out. And so it continues that theme. But let's pray uh, for the service and for the sermon here. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the good news that we find here in our text this morning. But it's only good once we understand how bad the bad news is. And so I pray that you, through your spirit, would work powerfully through your word. That you would change and transform our hearts on the spot as we behold the glory and the beauty of the salvation that we have and what you have saved us from. Only you can do this, and so we ask that you would this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were to go around asking strangers... What do you think about humanity? I think most of them would say overall that humanity is pretty decent. There are a few exceptions. Overall, humanity is pretty decent. If you were to ask a random selection of men and women, are people generally good or generally bad and evil? Most people would answer that in general they believe people are good, especially if you give them the right setting, the right education, the right uh, circumstances, that people are generally good. The Bible, however, gives us a different answer to that question. It says not only is no one good in Romans 3, but more than that, no one does good. (laughs) Not even one. In fact, as we read earlier during our time of confession, of seeing ourselves rightly, the Bible says that even our good acts are filled with filth and dirt before God. We are so bad that even the good things we do are riddled with evil, sin, and selfishness in them. In the first three verses of our passage, Paul gives a comprehensive picture of humanity outside of God. He lays out that the news is even worse than us just being bad. It's worse than that. Because when you are bad, there's hope. 
When you're bad, there's hope of reform, right? There's hope of maybe you can turn things around. There's hope of you being able to get your act together, of cleaning yourself up and get your life right if all you are is just bad. But Paul describes the natural human condition that we are born into, and it is beyond bad. He says we're dead. The natural human condition is dead. We are dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. The state that all humanity is born into is spiritually dead, lifeless, no heartbeat, which means no hope. The message that God and the Bible gives is not to, is not to make generally good people becoming the best we can be. It's not to make good people better. It is not a message, the Bible is not a message even for bad people to start to become good people. Like just get on the right path. Just live the right way. Do the right things. Avoid the wrong and bad things. Just obey. That's not the message of the Bible. It's not even that we're drowning. The message of the Bible is not even that we're drowning and that we need to be rescued. That we can't rescue ourselves. I think that's the picture that most people give or have concerning Jesus and the gospel. They present the gospel as if we are all in the middle of the ocean drowning, trying with all of our might to stay afloat, to keep our heads above water. But eventually the message is if you're left to yourself, you will eventually die. That is unless you grab onto Jesus as your life jacket Right? He's the one that will keep you afloat. He's the one that will keep you safe. But that is not the message. That is not the picture of the Bible. Because the picture that the Bible and Paul gives us is not that we are drowning in the ocean. Rather, it's that we are dead, lifeless on the ocean floor. A life jacket does us no good. Being found even and put on the dry land does us no good because we are dead. We are without life. Therefore, we need something much more extreme. We need something much more powerful than a life jacket. We need life. We need resurrection. We need to be born again. Part of our mission statement here at Redeemer is that we are a hospital, right? We say that we are a hospital. And one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, uh, that happens in a hospital is that you get a proper and accurate diagnosis of what's wrong with you. Because one of the worst and most dangerous things that could happen in a hospital is that you get misdiagnosed, right? Why? Because if you miss the true issue, if you miss the root problem, then at best, you're only treating symptoms. You're only treating the symptoms of what's really wrong with you. But you will never get well. You will never get healed. You will never get the needed solution that, is, that you have if you get the wrong diagnosis. Therefore, a big part of our calling as a church who seeks to be a hospital here in Edmond is that we diagnose what is wrong with us accurately in order that we go to the proper place to be healed. And the diagnosis we get from this passage is that all humanity is spiritually lifeless, dead. 
Therefore, our need is not behavior modification. Communication strategies are helpful, but that's not what we need. Personal, spiritual disciplines can produce helpful fruit, but it is not the core problem of what we need. Our need is new life. Our need is resurrection life. But the issue is that spiritually dead people cannot hear or understand the truth of God's word. Spiritually dead people cannot and do not love God as an end in himself. Instead, we use God as a means for our selfish end. Spiritually dead people cannot do good works that are pleasing to God. They can't do any of that because they are dead. In verses 2 through 3, Paul tells us what spiritually dead people actually do, what their life and behavior looks like. They tell us what we do apart from being in Christ. We are not passive, but are active. Verse 2 says spiritually dead people walk a certain way. That's right. Paul is saying and describing people who are dead as walking. He's literally telling us, That we are zombies. We are the walking dead. That's the state of every human being apart from Christ. That we are walking dead as zombies in the worst way. He says that spiritually dead people walk by following in verse 2. And they walk by carrying out in verse 3. That language that he's using is enslavement language. It's enslavement. It's being mastered by the things that he describes in those verses kind of language. It describes spiritually dead people as doing three things. Spiritually dead people walk according to the values, messages, and ways of the world. Referring, speaking specifically to rebelling against God. Rebelling against depending on Him. Spiritually dead people follow the prince of the power of the air, which is simply describing another title for Satan, for the enemy. Because he's the ruler over this world's realm. Now it's not saying that they actively worship, knowingly worship Satan, but that they follow his influence, right? Meaning that they're seeking to live a life dependent on themselves rather than seeking a life to submit to God and his word. That's our default way of living because of the fall, because of sin. And lastly, Paul tells us that spiritually dead people live according to the desires and passions of the flesh. In Galatians 5, he tells us that the flesh desires everything contrary to the Spirit. It is actively opposed to the Spirit of God. This is the way that spiritually dead, of the spiritually dead people, that's the way that spiritually dead people walk. And that was all of us. That's describing us. That we are being driven by desires of the flesh. What that means is that we will seek to exalt only ourselves. We will seek to depend only on ourselves and to seek to satisfy ourselves above anything and above anyone else. Martin Luther says that scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical but spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things seeks only himself. The human heart, naturally apart from God, uses everything to serve us, to serve self. 
Finally, Paul ends the description of the spiritually dead people as being children of wrath by nature. That is the diagnosis from the Bible of humanity apart from God. That is the picture that Paul is painting for us. And now do you see how vital it is to get the proper diagnosis of what's wrong? To get the proper diagnosis of what's going on because this diagnosis leaves no room for us to seek the solution of good advice. Good advice won't deal with what's wrong with us. That diagnosis leaves no room for moral improvement as a hope for us to change. This diagnosis leaves no room for us to live as if it's up to us to do our best and trust that God's going to do the rest. That's not the message. That's not the hope we have. It leaves no room for the sense of, I just try to live a good life, and I hope that's enough when I get to meet God. That's not the message of the Bible. That's not the diagnosis that we're given. It leaves no room for those things. And in leaving no room for those things, it is narrowing down what our only hope is. And it is clearly not found in looking inward because we are dead. John 3 actually gives us a case study of what happens when we get the diagnosis wrong. Because in John 3, we see Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, the one who teaches the Bible to Israel. He comes to Jesus one night because he believes and has heard Jesus' teaching. And he thinks Jesus is a teacher sent from God because he's teaching with such authority and doing such powerful things. But Nicodemus wanted to learn and grow from Jesus' teaching. He wanted to gain more knowledge about the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus had the wrong diagnosis. He had no idea how dire his need was. He had no idea that he was spiritually dead because a symptom of being spiritually dead is that you aren't aware of how bad it is. Therefore, when Jesus tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God, he is absolutely confused. He is lost of what Jesus is telling. He's baffled of what Jesus says because he responds with these questions. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Nicodemus had no understanding that he was spiritually dead. Therefore, he had no category for his real need, which was to be born again. He thought all he needed was a life preserver to make sure that he didn't drown. He thought all he needed was guidance to make sure that he was already walking down the right path. He thought that all he needed was instruction on how to walk better because he had no clue of his state before God that he was dead. That's the hard thing about this status. Everyone who is in it, in that state, is clueless to being in it. And yet, it is the way that every human is born into So that's the diagnosis that we get from Paul. That's the accurate, correct diagnosis of humanity apart from from God. And it is grim. It is bleak. Right? I mean, what's more bleak than death? Lifelessness. Inability. There's no sugarcoating how bad it is when you're dealing with death. When we look at this status, this state... 
that Paul describes, it's hopeless. It's overwhelming and impossible. And that's what Paul wants us to grasp. He wants us to have and start to let go of having hope within ourselves. But these are preparatory words. He's preparing us for what's about to come. That's the backdrop that Paul is giving us for what he's about to say. Because once you understand the true state and need that you are in, then the first two words of verse 4 become some of the most powerful, hopeful words in all the Bible. The next two words what Christianity offers that you can't get anywhere else. One commentator said, the heart of the gospel pumps bright red in these two words. Those two words are, but God. But God. Do you hear it? Do you hear the hope? Do you hear the power behind those words? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God. We're going to get through this, guys. <laughs> you once walked following the course of this world as a servant to their master. But God. You followed Satan, the prince of the power of the air. But God. You lived and carry out the passions and desires of the flesh. But God, you were by nature a child of wrath. But God, those two words, but God, changes everything. And once you are impacted by the power and the message of, that, of those words, you will start to see them everywhere. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death, but it also says, but God. It says your righteous acts are like filthy rags to him, because that's how sinful we are, but God. It says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, but God. I think these are the most hopeful, powerful, and life-changing words in all the Bible. For a Christian, these are words that you can bring into any situation, any circumstance, any struggle, any doubt, any stage of life that you're in. The hope and the power of but God is with you all the time. You were spiritually dead and dead in your sins, but God, it doesn't end there. Listen to what Paul goes on to say. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together 
with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see the resurrection life diamond shining its bright light against the dark black backdrop of death? You were dead. You were lifeless. You had no hope, no strength, no breath, no heartbeat, no ability to hear, no ability to see. But God, being rich in mercy, great in love, made us alive by grace. He has raised us and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. This is the good news of the gospel for you who are in Christ this morning. Those words are with you this morning. This is the power of but God. Pastor old side that for those who are not Christians here this morning, I'm glad you're here, but perhaps God has you here to give you who were dead resurrection life in Christ today. That he might be actually opening your eyes to your diagnosis and your need. And if he's doing so, don't delay, don't wait. You can have the power of these two words of but God in your life for all eternity. If you will confess what Paul says here is true. If you repent of your sins and confess your need for a Savior, if you repent and confess of your need for Jesus... If that is you, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders after the service. We would love to talk with you. Because God did all of this for us who are in Christ. But it's also what God does for Jesus. Did you catch that? He does the same thing for us that he does for Jesus. In fact, he tells us just in the previous section in verse 20 that he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Everything God did and does for Jesus, he does for those who are in Christ. That's the but God. Tim Keller says the essence of sin is putting ourselves where God should be. But the essence of salvation is God putting himself where we should be, which is on the cross. We get what Jesus earned. And he takes what we deserve. This is grace. This is the grace of God. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's all grace. There is nothing you do. There is nothing in or about us that causes God to save us. We are dead. You can't do anything. Rather, what this text makes clear is that God saves us because of what's in him. That's why he acts, not because of what's in us. Why the story doesn't end at verse 3 and continues with but God is because of what's in him, not because of what's in us. And you say, but Clay, it did say I'm saved through faith. I have to believe to be saved. My faith is what I bring to the equation of salvation, right? I mean, even the appeal to the non-Christians that I just gave a second ago called them to repent, right? 
put their faith in Jesus rather than on themselves? Isn't faith what we bring and what we need? Isn't that what is on us to produce in salvation? Well, the second part of verse 8 anticipates and debunks that understanding because right after it says you are saved through faith, it says, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In salvation, even your faith in the gospel is a gift of grace. It is not your own doing. Faith is not you grabbing onto life's preserver of Jesus so that you don't drown. It's clear we were dead. And Jesus breathed the breath of life into your lifeless lungs. So now you are resurrected with life. And faith is our eyes opening up in response to his breath of life making you alive. It's the response to the reality that you're already saved and alive. One commentator said this, We are saved by faith alone, not because of any works. What's more, faith itself is a gift. Faith is not the ultimate good deed that saves us, but the instrumental cause of our salvation. Grace flows through the channel of faith, but the channel is itself of God's construction. We are saved by Christ. Faith simply acknowledges and rests upon who He is and what He provides. Because salvation is entirely by the grace of God. We ought never to boast of our spiritual insights or accomplishments. Instead, we should rest in Christ our righteousness. We should rest in Christ, our holiness, and our redemption, end quote. There is no room for boasting. No room to take any credit, even for our faith in the gospel itself. This news should produce humility and confidence at the same time. Humility because we can't take credit for anything. All of salvation is a gracious gift from God, humility because we were dead. We have done nothing. We're like the valley of dry bones that were read earlier. We're lifeless. We're dry. We're dead. So that produces humility because all of salvation is a gracious gift. But it produces confidence because we have a certainty that's outside of us. We have a power that now resides inside of us in Christ. That is but God. That's, but God power is in our life forever. I'm running out of time to explain the rest of this passage, but verse 10 drives home that it's all grace, even further, and, and shows that the full, complete circle of salvation, right? He doubles down on it being all grace because he says that we are created in Christ for good works. But even those good works are something God prepared beforehand before we did anything that we should walk in them. Even your good works are evidence of God's grace at work in your life. He gets the credit. And did you notice the book ends of our shelf? The full, complete circle of salvation that you once were dead in your sins, walking as a spiritually dead person does. 
But now, because you've been made alive in Christ, you are walking into the good works that God has prepared beforehand because you have been made alive. So what does this text all mean? Verse 7 tells us that God is going to use you to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward you in Christ. Meaning that you will be experiencing the absolute richness of God's grace and kindness towards you for all eternity. That's your new condition. That's your new diagnosis. That's the but God that you can bring now into every dark backdrop in your life. May God in his rich grace give us faith to know the power of the words that are in our life of but God. May he do that for us this morning and throughout the week. Amen.